You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I'm Radhesan Naidu, the joint head of the institutional clients team at Alan Gray and lead for Orbis Client Servicing for South African-based clients. I'm also your host for this episode. My colleagues at our offshore partner, Orbis, have been banging the drum about the wide dispersion in valuations for a while. And last year, it looked like it was narrowing. However, this year, things have snapped back. In 2023, bond yields have risen sharply. However, the areas that tend to be most vulnerable to rising rates, such as technology, have counterintuitively also continued to rise. To explain how they are remaining focused on our shared investment philosophy and taming the fear of missing out, I'm joined by two long-serving members of the Orbis investment team, Alec Cutler and Ben Preston. Alec joined Orbis in 2004 and is based in Bermuda. He leads the multi-asset team and has overall responsibility for the Orbis Global Balanced and Orbis Global Cautious Strategies. Ben joined Orbis in 2000, he's based in London and directs client capital in the Orbis Global Equity Strategy. Right, so thank you, Alec and Ben. Thanks for joining us today and welcome back to South Africa. You've joined us at a very interesting point. I'm sure all of you are aware that we've won the rugby quite recently. So you've felt the vibe and the passion of the South Africans. You two have been at Orbis for a very long time. In line with that passion, my first question is quite pertinent. Where does your passion for investing come from? So Ben, over to you first. Well, my passion came really after I joined Orbis. The truth is... I was in the British education system, which doesn't give you much preparation for what comes after the British education system. So finance was a great career. I joined an investment bank before realizing that wasn't really for me. Then I was lucky enough to be placed by a recruitment consultant in an interview in Orbis. And that's where I kind of saw the light. And uh, working with Alan, he instilled in me the benefits of contrarian investment philosophy, and then the importance of putting the clients first. And that always resonated with me. He always used to say, and it's something we still talk about now, the clients do well, then we'll share in that success, and that's how it should be. And that always made sense to me. That's great. And Alec, your background's a bit different. I mean, you started in the Naval Academy, but then you've transitioned into investment. Where does your background, how has it lent itself to being involved in investments for more than your time in Orbis? I understand you are investing for 20 years before that as well. So where did that all emanate from? It really came from my grandmother, which is pretty unusual. But uh, when we were kids, my grandmother actually had a seat on New York Stock Exchange. Uh, her husband, my grandfather, had a had that seat. And uh, when he passed away, she was expected to sell it to his partners. And she didn't like the price. <laughs> So she kept it, and she was super passionate about investing, fantastic investor in her own right, and she used to sit us down and talk to us about stocks and bonds and the importance of dividends and excellent management teams, and it stuck with me. My brothers went on and did other things like play baseball, but (laughs) I kind of stuck with Gaga, and um, we talked about stocks all the time. It was fantastic. Oh, that's that's a wonderful story. You know, it's Alan Gray's 50th. Yeah, we we back in 1973. Both of you had your, I suppose, had exposure to Alan in the Orbis ecosystem. And one of the questions I'm interested in is any lesson that stuck with you from spending time with him, and particularly as it maybe is playing out in this environment, what would you say has been an important learning curve having spent time with him? Well, Alan first sent me off on a bunch of stocks. He said, go and look at these stocks and we'll find a great investment within these. And I 
came back and I said, look, this is this is the one I think is the best value. And he said, that's the cheapest in the in the bunch. And I said, exactly. <laughs> and he said, don't bring me the cheapest stock in the sector. Bring me the best company. And you might say, well, how's that? How does that fit with a value-based investment strategy? Why is that contrarian? He thought the world moved in cycles. And after you've got had very good times, it attracts a lot of capital into an industry, and you get too much capital chasing a profit pool, it starts precipitating the down cycle, and that's when things get washed out. And after things have been washed out for a long time, that's when you might get to find bargains. But then the advantage of buying the best company in the sector at that time, they've normally used that down cycle to improve their business, to gain market share, and then they can come out stronger than anybody else. So that's one of the things that I look for, and I encourage the team to follow that. Look for places in the market where capital cycle has, has left things washed out, and then look for which company can really benefit, bring me the best company within that group. There's probably a lot of resonance with what we're seeing today with that, uh, with that analogy. Uh, Alec, is there anything else you'd add and anything else that Alan taught you during your time? Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to um, to share an office wall with Alan for for ten years, and I'd say the two big takeaways that I think Alan really brought to the fore was number one, he was incredibly talented, wicked smart, but he worked as hard as anyone. He was in the office completely random times. One of the things that I was taught by my father is you you get to work before your boss and you leave after your boss. That was really, really hard to do with Alan <laughs> because he was in the office at all all times. And, uh, you know, I started coming to the office at 7 to try and beat him, and it was maybe 50-50. And then you never really know when, when he would leave, but it certainly was after after dark. So just the, the dedication and the passion to the, to the art form and to the business. The second was that clearly, you know, Alan was a visionary. He had very high intelligence and high emotional intelligence. And yet he could argue until the cows came home his opinion on a stock or his opinion on a business decision. And if he got a piece of information that changed his mind, he had no problem changing his mind. And then the next day he would come in and he would argue the exact opposite, which was kind of frustrating if you're trying to, to deal with the business decisions in any way. But what I learned from that is just a willingness to admit that you're wrong or change your mind so hard in this business. You get so wedded to ideas. You've done so much work on it that it's really hard to change. And Alan, Alan could do that on a dime, which was really cool. I think that's important. I mean, we often describe ourselves as having a lot of conviction, which is great, but also knowing exactly when you need to turn the other way and say, well, there's new evidence. I'm going to take this conversation in, into the more market-rated space of things. And you guys are looking at this stuff day in, day out. Last year, I think the story of the year was interest rates and inflation, right? And we've been talking about this in, in, in the commentaries you've written, I suppose, in the years before, 2018, 2019. Alec, from your perspective, where are we now, essentially, in this cycle? It's been tumultuous. Central banks are doing crazy things, trying to get inflation under control. Where have we arrived? And is, there must be a longer way to go. Yeah, I, I think you have to start with the central banks doing everything they could to create inflation and being convinced that they ne were never going to do it. Lo and behold, they were able to do it, despite the fact that they didn't think they were doing it at the time. And we had inflation ripping up 8 10% in, in developed markets. Now, people are of the mind, investors are of the mind that we've 
whipped inflation and the Fed has done uh, raising rates, the ECB's done raising rates, and we're going to go back into the nirvana that was the post-global financial crisis period with back to low rates, back to low inflation, back to higher valuations. We think while there might be some temporary relief in inflation, that there are long-term, long-cycle inflation impulses that are going to move inflation higher, maybe 4% plus on average over the next 20 years, whereas everyone's expecting 2%. That's fair. And I mean, one of the things from your side, Ben, is that what Alex saying is true, these are massive macro shifts. But if you think about our shared approach to investing, it's very much different from the bottom up. So how do we square those two things when you're trying to build a portfolio? Well, we build from the mm-hmm. bottom up, mm-hmm. and then we like to cross-check. I think that's that's a nice way to do it, because mm-hmm. when it's all working out nicely, you build, you just go where the value is, and you build a portfolio that way. And then you say, look, what exposures did we, have we ended up with? And then the, does that make sense, given the type of things that's going on in the world that Alex just described? But I would also say there's there's not just one investment cycle going on. There are many. And if you go to Japan, let's mm. say, you've got a very different capital cycle. All the things that have been going on in the US that have created the environment that we now see with rising earnings, very strong profit margins, share buybacks, you've had anything but in Japan. You've had management teams sitting on lots of cash. You've had a bubble that still has been washing out for 30 years, and only now are property prices beginning to rise again, only now are corporate earnings now rising rapidly again. So, you know, not everywhere in the world is on that same trajectory. You touched on the word bubble there, and I think that's been another core focus, I suppose, as as it led into 2021. We'd been talking about loose money. It had filtered its way into not just stocks, bonds, private assets, crypto. It seemed everything had got into extremes. And now, I suppose, one of the things I wanted to get into your heads about is like, what does it feel like being on, on the opposing end of that trade, right? How do you manage yourself actually in that environment? Because you could be against the grain as, you, as you're trying to do that. So then from Alec, from your side, what does that feel like actually being in that kind of environment when things are getting so extreme? Yeah, and just to describe mm-hmm. that, that extreme scenario that we were dealing with. So that would be the, the Federal Reserve creating $9 trillion in liquidity. That created a massive tailwind for... Uh, all financial assets, and allowed things to run and run and run. And when you're a a contrarian or a value-oriented investor, we tend to not run with a name as long as the market tends to run with a name. So we're out of the the high flyers, you know, when they hit 20,000 feet, and then they go to another, they go to 40,000 feet, and that can be frustrating for us. uh, As we're rotating the portfolio into things that we find are compelling from a valuation standpoint. So that that's the environment. The way it feels, you know, I'm not sure I can use my entire entire vocabulary <laughs> in this podcast, but it's a headwind. It feels like a headwind and it feels like we have to work twice as hard to keep up, you know, and four times harder to to create alpha. But if you've been in the business for more than a couple of cycles, you know that, that there are environments where we're actually um, not doing as good a job or our batting average isn't as good, but um, we're outperforming just because we have the tailwinds at our back and you get the good with the bad. So hopefully 
we're now transitioning out of a headwind environment to an environment that has um, more volatility in it, more uh, things going on in the world uh, that creates opportunity, a higher inflation perhaps, more volatile inflation, environments where, where we tend to have better than even odds. Given your histories, you've, you've seen the cycles before. So, I mean, you could pay attention to, I suppose, there's classic signs here that are playing out. I mean, if you reflect back to the other times, 2008, 2000, even earlier, 1990, are there similarities that are going on around at, at this moment that actually make you say, well, it's pretty obvious to me, or what, it, what is the market missing exactly? Well, 1990s before my time, I'm glad <laughs> to say. In terms of similarities with past periods, it's never exact. And they say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But we talk a lot about the Magnificent Seven today, mm -hmm. and we talk a lot about why would you need to invest anywhere except the US? So the US, 4% of the world population, 15% of the world's GDP measured at purchasing power parity, mm -hmm. but 25% of GDP at current exchange rates. Mm -hmm. And it's a great place to invest. So we've got 50% of our portfolio in the US. But the world index is even more extreme, a 65%. Mm. And that's, I think, why is it so extreme? Why has one country got to being such a vast majority of the whole world's stock market capitalization? Three things have come along. So one, profits are well above their historic average. And then the multiple that's being applied to those profits is also very high compared to the rest of the world. And the currency is strong. So the last time that that combination of three factors came along in a large country in the world was Japan, and that was in 1990. So it took 15 years after that before corporate profits were restored. And it's taken 34 years and counting before the stock market has mm. reached a new high. So in terms of Recollections, that's one that I think is a little bit reminiscent of where we are today. I think Japan, Not Japan was 40% of the uh, global index at one point. Was, yeah, off the world index. It was a more extreme bubble. Mm. But I think you ha would have to look at the US in 2021 and say that was also a pretty good bubble. It was mm. a perfect combination. Alec talked about the amount of liquidity that was printed. We were also promised 0% interest rates for years. We were locked at home without any money <laughs> to spend in the real economy. So it all had to go on a speculation. So it was a, it was a great bubble. And we're partway through unwinding that. But another period in terms of just a small number of shares that people got convinced, all you need to do is own this group of, of uh, shares was the Nifty 50 in the early 1970s. And I don't think it's any coincidence. We're, we're at Alan Gray celebrating 50 years. And 50 years ago was 1973. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Alan mm. chose that year to start his business. Because he loved these periods where investors got convinced that all he needed to do was buy this one narrow group of stocks or just invest in one particular way. And of course, 1990, when the Japanese bubble was when he launched Orbis. So I think he'd be rubbing his hands in glee <laughs> at the current opportunity set. Along those lines, if I think back in history, this period reminds me of other periods of regime change in the market that human nature and human psychology just has a hard, hard time with. Sorry, define, maybe define regime change. The a wholesale change in the investing environment from one condition to another. So I can des describe mm. those pretty easily. <laughs> but, you know, the last 14, 15 years mm. post-global financial crisis has been a period of high liquidity being pushed into the market, 
low and ever lower interest rates, low and ever lower inflation rate, benefiting a single type of stock and a single type of, of bond, long duration, anything, mm. did very, very well. It's very difficult for humans to have one thing go on for 14 years and then to pick up that change. However, the drivers behind this have been going, some of them, for 40 years. Mm. So inflation and interest rates have been dropping since 1981. That's a long, long time to then rock up and say, hey, you know, it's been dropping for 40 years. We're at zero. We think it might be going up for the next 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. And people look at you like you're crazy because they only know one thing. Or labor being weak. So people don't remember an environment where labor was strong. But labor was super strong from World War II through the 70s. And now it's been in a tailwind uh, until really in, in the last year. And what do we have now? We have an incredible environment where two weeks ago, until the auto union strikes were resolved, we had more Americans on strike than at any time since the 1960s. That's incredible. And yeah. the popularity of labor unions is at an all-time high or at a high not reached since the, since the 1960s. So we're starting to see these very long cycles. Outsourcing since the 1990s is now reversed. It's very difficult for humans to pick up changes after a long period of, of uniformity, and it's very difficult for investors as well. That makes us look back at times in the past where that's been the case. So we're mm -hmm. educated by the, the late 70s, early 80s. We're educated by the late 90s, early 2000s uh, in that regard. In terms of how difficult it is to stand against that type of cycle that Alec is describing. So we, as you know, we've been invested in some banks in the Orbis Global Equity Fund, particularly in Korea and Japan. Mm. And it's exactly to that contrarian bet and long-term fundamentals. So which companies actually benefit from an improvement in inflation and interest rates? Banks. Where, where might that happen? Korea and Japan. So very contrarian, but pretty good value. But in terms of how difficult it is, I was here in South Africa in March giving a presentation to clients. And before I went, the client team said, you know, what are, what are your biggest positions? So I said, well, Japanese and Korean banks. And they and said, right. Well, so they made, Valley me, Bank. Yeah. they made me a presentation <laughs> about that. And it was exactly on the, that day that Silicon Valley Bank was going down, that I was standing up talking about banks and how attractive <laughs> they were in our portfolio. So there's no way to feel good about yourself in that mm. situation. There fortunately, really fortunately, some of them rebounded, right? They've, they, they've, 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 well, the they've Japanese been, banks have done extremely well. They've, yeah. they've, been, they've been good. But in terms of how often taking a contrarian position can make you look and feel rather stupid, it's difficult to stand against that but the rewards for doing so are worth it. Oh, agreed, totally. I mean, like over the longer term, I think these contrarian positions have been the makings of our track record, right? And, and that's, in, that's, in terms that's, of the legacy that yeah, Alan legacy, yeah. taught us and, and left us with, that's a big one for me, how to strike that balance between constantly questioning your assumptions and then being resolute enough to stick and even increase your position when you're convinced. So on that weekend when I was here and the banks were falling five and 10% in a day and I was convinced that mm. what was happening at Silicon Valley Bank was not remotely relevant to the Japanese or Koreans. I was running the stress tests all over again with spreadsheets on my computer so that I could question it, but then also have 
the resolve to hold those possessions with conviction. Sure, you were sleeping like a baby. Not so. Alec, <laughs> <laughs> picking up on something you said earlier about this one bucket of shares doing really well. So if you look inside a lot of the the indices that people so we have this in South Africa, we've always had this thing of the top five shares have been a large portion of our index, Anglo-American, Bulletin, Naspers, Richmond. Ironically, when I look now at some of these indices abroad, like the NASDAQ, suddenly the Magnificent Seven is nearing 50%. And you can look at the topics and a few others. It almost feels as though things have shifted, as though when you normally invested in an index, you get a nice spread of ideas. Would you almost agree that inside the index, you're carrying actually a lot more risk than people are aware of today? We should start with the notion that the S&P 500 is not a random grouping of stocks. It's picked by a committee. And it's always tended to have a growth bias, which is great for us because when we have names that graduated into being an accepted popular stock, the S&P 500 includes it and, it, mm. and we get a nice pop from it. You know, again, we can look back at, at history. And I look at the way people fawn over NVIDIA right now. And it is so much like the way people behaved around Cisco in the late uh, 1990s. John Chambers, the CEO of Cisco, he was the oracle of not just technology, but also also um, economic markets and business. And he could do no wrong. And it was an unassailable moat. Everything ran through Cisco. All the things that you're seeing said about NVIDIA today, you could have just slapped Cisco on it and roll back in time. Uh, and Cisco is still a fantastic company. It still grows. But no one really pays attention to it. because, And it's never eclipsed the highs that it reached in share price when it was selling at 70 times revenues like, like NVIDIA is today. You know, this, this too shall pass when you look at, at massive companies that have been super successful especially in technology. Technology is about uh, the young destroying the old. We've had a few tech cycles here in a row where the mega names have held their own and led in those changes that may be coming to an end. One, they're just too darn big. They can no longer grow by going after mom and pop retail. They can only grow by going after each other. And two, they benefited in those environments where they were able to stay big and not get eaten by the young by a very laissez-faire mergers and acquisitions or antitrust environment. And that has changed wholeheartedly. They're not allowed to buy anything anymore. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult for them to continue to grow. And we'll have another 20 years from now, we'll have another crop of amazing names that just go on a, on a, on a torrid run and Older Ben and older Alec will be here talking to you, complaining about them probably. I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about what we don't own. So I want to get you guys talking about what we do own in the portfolios and what gets us excited. So, I mean, I, I've read the commentaries, you know, for the past few years. And, and often a theme that comes out, as you've picked up on, is this, this idea of neglected areas, areas that have become forgotten. The two that I, I actually want to dig into a little bit and get your views on are energy and financials, right? So the financials is the biggest weight in the global equity fund, a lot of the energy shares in the August level balance fund. So for Ben, just from the financials perspective, a, a big portion is within Japan and Korea, right, as you've pointed out. 
thinking about how we got here on those shares and their type, that what kind of returns clients can, can expect from them, why are they so attractive? Because financials are also leverage. We all know that. And they're very sensitive to what goes on in the world. So what is so attractive about these, about these shares in Japan and Korea? Investors are usually fighting the last war. And the big scar that investors have that um, my age and 10 years either side was the global financial crisis mm. and where banks were just terrible. And that perception lingers. Even though, actually, if you look at the banks, you read through the notes of the financial statements, you go through it properly, you see they actually changed quite a lot. The regulations have changed what banks need to do in terms of the activities that they undertake, in terms of the way that their risks are calculated and controlled, in terms of the capital that they hold. So for a decade and more, they were under the regulatory thumb. Regulators were tightening what they could do, imposing fines and penalties for this and that. And just when they were coming out of that, then interest rates went to zero globally, more or less. And it's very difficult for a bank to make money when interest rates are zero because you can't make a spread, the difference between your lending spread and your deposit spread. You just can't do it when interest rates are super low. So for 15 years or so, from 2008 until now, they've really struggled. And it's only in the last couple of years when interest rates have risen, first in the US and Europe, and then slowly spreading, that banks have started to be able to make money again. Fundamentals have been washed out for many, many years. Investors fearful because of what happened last time. So what that's left us with is actually improving fundamentals from a very low base, but still a very, very low price, very reasonable price. And the one place that interest rates have not yet risen is Japan, because inflation has been slower to kick off there. So we were able this time last year to buy Japanese banks at about a 40%-ish discount from book value. I'm not a huge book value investor. Book value is if you get the accountant to add up all the assets the company owns, and subtract all the liabilities, what you're left with is their net asset value, also known as book value. For most companies, that's just kind of a historic footnote. It's, it's the price they paid years ago for their assets. But for banks, those are marked to market all the time. So that's fresh. So for a bank, it's actually a reasonable approximation for what the assets Thanks and what? liabilities mm. are actually worth. Most companies, including banks, should be worth more than that because they're investing their capital to make a profit. But uh, you can occasionally buy companies for less than that net asset value and sometimes significantly less. And that was the case a year ago in Japan because no one ever expected Japanese interest rates to rise. From a global perspective, I'd seen it happen elsewhere and thought that the type of environment that had played out elsewhere was also coming to Japan. Exit from COVID, inflationary pressures building, etc., etc. The Japanese analysts and investors who had seen nothing but zero rates for 25 years just wouldn't believe it would ever happen. So that was our opportunity. And actually, a year later, Japan still hasn't raised interest rates. So they're still attractive. But expectations have risen that it might happen in, in the future. So yes, the stocks, have, the stocks have done well. They're still attractive because they're still priced at a very reasonable uh, discount to that book value. But the opportunity was even more golden last year. Mm. Uh, and that's really what we're looking for is when fundamentals are actually improving, but investors haven't got there yet. And Alec, on the energy side, is, it a, is there a similar kind of analogy that's been playing out here as well? 
like any industry concentration mm. that we build, you know, Ben said that we did it when it was a, when it was difficult mm. to do so. Uh, energy was was certainly difficult, and we were we started uh, the overweight in 2018, 2019, then 2020. And if you recall, in 2020, at one point, the price of oil went negative after we had a full position uh, and a significant <laughs> overweight. So that wasn't very fun. When we bought in 2018 and built in 2019, we did so thinking about the catalyst of years of underinvestment in the industry. So we, we felt as though we weren't just being contrary. We weren't just buying stuff that was down. We were buying, in a contrarian way, things that were down that we don't think deserve to be down. It's a big difference. That started the, the significant overweight, 2021, 2022. That paid off handsomely as, uh, as the world recognized that, yeah, oil's not going to go out of business anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, natural gas is, uh, is the, the transition fuel for transitioning to a, an electric global power system. Subsequent to that, we've we continue to have significant overweight in energy, but it's changed significantly. As those names appreciated, we moved heavily into energy infrastructure. So critical bits of the system that have been underinvested in and either should be more valuable because there's less of it relative to how much demand there is, or where where new critical systems are being built, we want to own the companies that are building them. And you're touching on a sore point here because we, we, you're in South Africa and you know about load shedding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've noticed one, one chart you put up uh, a while ago, I remember, uh, it was about the average age of electricity grids, which are actually pretty old in a lot of parts of the world. So a lot of the companies that I think you're referencing are companies that actually participate in this, whether they're maintaining the grid or improving it, are those opportunities that, have you, that you've leaned into. That's exactly right. Whether it's pipelines crisscrossing the United mm-hmm. States, moving natural gas around with, that are needed to replace coal mm-hmm. plants, or replacing the and completely reorienting the electric grids of our countries so that we can reorient away from a coal plant in X to an offshore wind uh, farm in Y, there's a heck of a lot of cable that's required to do that. And the fact that the average age of that cable, that high-voltage cable in the Western world is 40, 45 years old for 20 to 25-year design life just puts an exclamation point on the need to overhaul the infrastructure. So a name like a a Prismian, which is uh, the old Pirelli cable Mm -hmm. in Italy, uh, that's the largest um, high-voltage DC, high-voltage AC cable manufacturer in the world. Uh, they're they're just in a prime position to to help overhaul that system. There's another lens here on, on these energy shares, and it's actually interesting in the sense that through the world of ESG and the pressure, some of the companies that have done well are actually the best performing lo- sector last year was energy shares, right? And a lot of it to do with the demands for it. So how have you seen this play out from your perspective? It's almost as though the focus on certain elements on the ESG have given way discounts of certain shares that actually need to be around. But it, maybe it's, it's, I don't know if it's only localized to energy or if it's actually a broader uh, theme than that. We set down our responsible investing principles in 2021. And we formed a responsible investing team mm. in 2022. We always feel that we've invested responsibly, but we wanted to clarify that those principles and then build a capability to, to do it well. So, a lot of the world has interpreted 
responsible investing or environmental social governance issues to mean very narrowly, thou shalt not own X. Hmm. Any shares in such and such industries, you're not allowed to invest in. And so what that meant was a real uh, shortage of capital that went into certain industries, including energy. And that, of course, contributed to the shortages that we saw. So what we mean by responsible investing is quite different. And it means taking all into account all relevant decisions when we, when we make an investment decision, taking into account all relevant considerations. And then once we become owners, to act in good faith as stewards of our clients' capital in, in how we behave as owners. One of the things that we've done as part of that is to and by the way, this was never just about never just mm. about altruistically doing the right thing. We think it's going to make us better investors as well. Because when we're asking ourselves what are the considerations that we should take into account, some of those are how regulations might change in the future. Carbon taxes, let's say, emission trading schemes. What what is the value of an externality? An externality is is a cost of doing business that is not taken through the accounts of the company, but is imposed on society instead. So a classic one would be air pollution, carbon emissions. If we start looking at those, and, and, and what we did was we started to look at those. And what we found is that's how actually we led us to Constellation Energy, which is the biggest mm. nuclear power station in the US, the biggest nuclear power company in the US with 20 nuclear power stations. Nuclear, apart from hydro, which nobody's building anymore and it's quite small. Nuclear is the only power source that is reliable but also carbon free. Not with the intermittency of renewables and not with the emissions of fossil fuels. Mm. So it's actually a very valuable energy source. And once we started factoring in the the true cost on society uh, and say what if what if the companies are forced to bear these one day? What if that actually gets recognized in a company's costs? the cost of damaging the environment, or the cost of intermittency, the cost of storage, then what does it look like in terms of which fuel sources are most attractive? And nuclear was just an outlier in that. And the amazing thing is that we can now buy shares in Constellation Energy at an 80% discount for what it would take to build those nuclear power stations today. So it was partly through our work on responsible investing that we got to it, and then when we looked at it, you know, we just thought that's such a bargain. That's a great example. And, and there was actually another one I wanted, Alec, you to touch on, which was you had, I think if I recall, you had added a lot to defense shares back end of 2021 into 2022. Are those positions still in the fund and how have they played out? Because a part of their, if I recall, a part of their thesis was around the fact that, you know, society had thrown them out the water, so they're not investable. But now recognizing the geopolitical shifts in the world, actually there's a reason to have them around. So similar to, to nuclear, mm. um, Ben was able to buy Constellation Energy at a very attractive price because nuclear wasn't, wasn't thought to be in keeping with the ESG mode of the time. And when we did the research, we said, this is actually a very pro-global uh, warming area. and We don't understand why it's not being embraced. We saw defense very similarly at a time when Europe in particular was was attacking their own defense industry as um, producing social ill and setting up a social taxonomy system 
that was designed to add an extra tax on companies that produce social ill, like gambling. They included defense. Mm. Defense was at the top of the list. That made no sense to us. One, because financially all you're doing is putting a tax on stuff that then you're going to have to (laughs) – you still have to buy the tank that you just put a tax on. So you're Mm. just charging yourself a tax. So a a circular tax didn't make any sense. But more importantly, um, there would be no ESG if there wasn't defense to defend Mm. our way of life because there's a large chunk of the world that doesn't believe in any of this. I think they were kind of laughing at us. So we were – we were able to buy particularly the European defense names at six, seven times earnings, a very, very low multiple relative to, say, the U.S. at 17, 18 times earnings because everyone was selling out of them in anticipation of this tax coming or selling out of them because they were buying off on a sustainability or an ESG mandate and were, were getting out of these, these terrible, ugly names. They've done a 180 in perception to much closer to, to the way we saw them, which was you actually need defense in order to have a liberal society that you can debate something like ESG. That's still argued uh, in the ESG world. I think some, some ESG funds now have converted to, to rating defense quite highly and, as a big positive, and some are sticking to, you know, we'll only invest in weapons that don't kill anyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> someone actually said to that, that to me when I asked them why they don't invest in defense. They said our clients only want us to invest in, in weapons that don't kill anyone. I just kind of nodded and, and walked off with my drink. We, uh, we continue to hold a significant part of the, the balance portfolio and defense names. They are fairly custom-made for a, a moderate-risk portfolio in that they're, they're diversifying and they bring what could be considered 10 years from now blue-chip-type growth aspects to a, to a portfolio. We're still quite heavily weighted in them. We've moved the gravity of the of the defense position eastward. Um, so picked up a defense stock in um, India and one in Korea that we think are quite attractive as you know global regional conflicts risk mm-hmm. moving east. Sure. Alex, sticking with you, I, I want to just may get your views on some other asset classes because you, you run a fund with multi-assets. And you know, for, for a while, and if I look back since you started running in 2013, bonds haven't featured as highly for good reasons. We've, we've chatted about this. But now with rates getting back, U.S. dollar yields at 5%, at what point do you think it becomes relatively more attractive to have that exposure relative to, say, your other asset classes, your hedged equity, your gold in the portfolio? Yeah. So fixed income is becoming more competitive. We're finding more opportunities, particularly with the backdrop of a higher inflation rate going forward. We're building a portfolio with an inflation rate, a volatile inflation rate, but around 4% minimum going forward. So in that environment, bonds like Treasury Inflation Protected Securities start to look quite attractive where we can get a, a 2.5% real yield and then you get paid inflation mm-hmm. on top of that. So where you don't know what inflation is going to be, bonds can be incredibly risky. So if you wind up with high inflation, uh, your nominal bonds can get can get crushed, particularly if you're taking any kind of duration. With uh, inflation-protective securities, you're not taking that risk. So those seem kind of attractive to us. Uh, Corporate bonds are starting to beat equities when we look at companies. If we can get a a corporate bond yielding 8, 10, 11% for an equity that we really like, but where the the equity is not producing any kind of dividend yield, 
we can almost convert that equity into a moderate risk by buying the convert, uh, convertible preferreds or the debt, the corporate debt. So we're doing a little bit of that. Add those things up, and we have the debt allocation is around 20% of the portfolio now, which is a, an all-time record, <laughs> <laughs> a whopping 20%. But it was pegged at a minimum. We have mm-hmm. a minimum of 10%, okay. and it was pegged at 10% for, as you point out, eight and a half, nine years of mm-hmm. our 11 years running the fund. So I wanted to ask you guys both the same question. This is, this is the one that probably keeps you up at night. Things are changing. We talk about the regime shifts, but what happens if it doesn't change in the way that you would like it to play out? And your portfolios are positioned, I suppose, in some sense for the changes. So how do you debate that amongst yourselves, amongst your team? And does your positioning make sense, I suppose, in that environment? So I guess what you're talking about there is from 1982 to 2021, you had 40 years in which the direction of travel was broadly consistent. So bond yields just ratcheted lower and lower and lower until they went actually negative. Inflation rate went down and down and down. And valuation ratios went up and up and up. Taxes went down. (laughs) And and the market ended up concentrated in a very small number of mega cap stocks, which everybody loved to own. And we have said that's been a little bit bubbly and we kind of positioned for that to unwind. Now, what if that goes the other way? And actually, that's 2023. That's what's happened this year. That's what's happened. So we've had a strong counter trend rally led by the likes of NVIDIA and the Magnificent Seven. Uh, The S&P 500, which is the main stock market in the US, which is up, I think, 12% or so year to date. If you take out the Magnificent Seven, it's pretty much flat. So there's been a huge penalty for not being invested in those seven stocks. Maybe point out which are the seven, yeah. The Magnificent Seven, the memory test, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, and Tesla. I think that's seven out of seven. We own... Alphabet. We don't own the rest. And so that's we've missed out, if you like, on that. That said, if you look at our performance year to date, it's kind of pretty similar to the the world index. How can that be? Well, our research processes have uncovered other great investment opportunities that we've captured, that we've earned good returns on, that have made up for not owning those few stocks. We've been sort of, I suppose, running up the down escalator in that our alpha has actually done quite well for us. We've made a lot of stock uh, idiosyncratic alpha and stock picking, but we've been on the wrong side of that big Mm. uh, reversal. So I actually think that that's relatively encouraging because if then we are right on the longer term picture, then we get that alpha that we're making on the stock picking without the headwind of these mega cap stocks rallying higher and ever higher. Um, and that's when the returns that we have might be considerably better than the world market. You know, so the, the environment where I know that at least balance would have a very difficult time performing would be if we just snapped back to, you know, 1% 10-year yields and zero inflation, uh, not just a spike down in, a volatile spike down in inflation, but no inflation whatsoever reverting back to fear of secular deflation, population growth becoming the thing that everyone's talking about and how the world is aging. You know, if we snap back to that environment, balance will have a difficult time because 
long duration will do quite well, and we're quite short in duration. So what do I mean by that? Long duration would be stocks that have all their earnings way out in the future. Uh, we tend not to traffic in those unless they're extremely cheap on, on very conservative assumptions because we can't see the cash flow. And uh, similarly with, with fixed income, we're, we're not very interested in things that don't provide much interest income for the level of duration risk you might be taking to get that interest income. And when we look at we look at fixed income, you know, a 5% or 4.62 uh, U.S. 10-year now, that's below average. In this environment where we think inflation is going to trend higher, we're not going to accept that as payment for the level of risk we're taking. Uh, so we're just not there. We're not in, we're not in long-duration assets. And if we go back to an environment that is, you know, anything other than long-duration need not apply, That'll be a difficult headwind for us, similar to what we saw in 2018 or 19. So having said that, yeah. we don't think that's the environment we're going to see. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. I actually want to ask you guys what, each answer this question, is that there's, there's a lot of noise in world markets. It has been tumultuous. I've done many client presentations and had to like present on so many things where it felt, jeez, where is this ending? So I guess my final question to you both is, what's the message you'd like to leave clients with as you're looking out for the next three to five years? Well, there are reasons to be cheerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first time for some time that we've felt that way. Mm. The, the mantra used to be, Tina, there is no alternative, meaning there was no alternative to buy these huge mega cap tech stocks. They're the only things that would provide a return. There is an alternative now, and that's, that's a good starting point. You can get 4.8%-ish on 10-year on bonds in the US. You can get five plus on T-bills. And there are parts of the world where the capital cycle is just getting interesting. There are parts of the world that are just going through the sorts of corporate reform that you saw in the US in the 1980s. Built in the, in the 1980s, I guess, then it got refined in the 1990s. It probably went to excesses in the, in the last few years. Just getting started in Japan, and Korea is now looking across the water and saying, Maybe we should do some of that as well. So there are, I think, reasons to be cheerful. Uh, you brought up earlier this aspect of whether active and passive have kind of swapped roles. And I think that's dead right. We think of passive as this broad, diversified, index-following investment strategy. You get exposure, you get a bit of this, you get a bit of that. You're not too tied to any one thing. And that's true most of the time. And that's why passive investing is actually a good solution for a lot of investors as part of their portfolio. But every so often, investors get so herded into a particular narrow theme that that actually breaks down. And you get that an index following strategy becomes quite overexposed, usually to the most expensive, most popular, most dangerous thing. And in those environments, that's when I think an active manager can actually play a useful and valuable role in bringing the diversification that the passive strategy is supposed to be doing but isn't and be protecting by looking for investment opportunities that have greater upside and lower risk than some of those very expensive popular areas. As I look at the Orbis Global Equity Portfolio and the Orbis Balanced Portfolio today, I think that's exactly what you're seeing. We've got reasonably priced companies without having to drop down the quality spectrum, where the risk of loss, I think, is 
probably lower than, in fact, probably is a bit softer than I really believe. <laughs> I think much likely to be a, a lower risk than world stock markets, and yet with much greater return potential because they're not the hot stocks of today. Potentially the hot stocks of tomorrow, who knows? But I think there are more reasons to be cheerful for investors today than there have been for some time. Any further thoughts from Yale? I've been on the road lately too. And uh, one of the questions I tend to get is, um, is 60-40 investing dead? I don't know if you get that. Mm -hmm. So a 60-40 portfolio consists of 60% in world equity markets and 40% in bonds. And it's typically considered as a way of getting a moderate risk outcome for most clients because when equities do well, bonds do badly, or when bonds do well, equities do badly. And over time, that that balancing act between the two typically produces a good outcome for clients. It, it makes me chuckle because, you know, we were thinking about that when we started the the balance fund and started the work on it in 2012. And we built the fund for a, for a different reason than than folks se- folks seem to have latched onto that type of investing for. That being, you know, is sixty forty dead? Is the, the implication is that bonds are now correlated with equities, and therefore you're not getting that bond zig when equities zag type protection. Sixty forty was never about that for us. Sixty forty was about increasing the opportunity set to better enable to enable you to create a moderate risk profile portfolio. So if you're looking for sixty quote unquote sixty forty to be something that produces no volatility because the bonds are going up when equities are going down, then 60-40 investing is dead. I don't think it was ever really alive. If you're looking for 60-40 to give you a much, much, much broader opportunity set from which to create a moderate risk portfolio, it's incredibly alive. To Ben's point, we have wonderful investment opportunities to pick from. And And it's only made more so now that we have bonds back in play, you know, our team is working overtime on lots of different opportunities and the turnover in the portfolio is going up because we were finding better things to invest in. And that's really nirvana for us. So super exciting time. That's great to hear. Thank you, Alec and Ben for joining me today. It's always fascinating to hear how our shared investment philosophy plays out in various global markets. In closing, I think it's important to recognize how the same principles which have underpinned our shared investment approach are as relevant today as they were 50 years ago. We've gone through a lot of these concepts in the podcast today, and it really does come down to a few things. One being bottom-up, which means considering each investment idea on its own merit, so you don't discard ideas or themes because it doesn't fit your narrative. Being fundamental, which means looking deeply to understand how each investment will derive long-term value. And lastly, being contrarian, which really means having the conviction to take opposing views to the consensus. If you'd like to get in touch, please send an email to info at You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform and be notified of new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the terms and conditions or find out more about our offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Rudesh Naidu. This podcast was produced by Volume.